Before we start the show, a reminder to follow all of our political reporting on the NPR One app. That's N-P-R-O-N-E. You can find all your favorite podcasts, including Car Talk. That's right, Car Talk, not just on your radio, also available as a podcast with advice, tips, troubleshooting, and occasionally answers to car questions. Get Car Talk now on the NPR One app or at npr.org slash podcasts. Okay, here's the show. Hey, everybody. It's the NPR Politics Podcast here with an episode of Listener Mail. This is where we answer your questions about the issues, what we're seeing on the trail, and anything else you're curious about. I'm Susan Davis. I cover Congress. I'm Elsa Chang. I also cover Congress. And I'm Domenico Montanaro. I don't cover Congress. (laughs) (laughs) You're special. I'm political editor and sometimes uh, overlap with Congress when the the political story moves there, which it will after Election Mm -hmm. Day. Well, I am not even supposed to be here. I wasn't even supposed to be in this podcast. But when I found out that my friend... My companion, my work spouse, your partner in is going to be here. I locked Sam Sanders in a closet. Um, I actually gagged him, tied him up. I left snacks and water in there. He's fine. And I'll let him out at the end of the podcast. But I wanted to be in the Listener Mail podcast with my friend Elsa. Thanks for letting me crash the party. I mistaken you, Sue, for Sam because you're wearing his outfit. (laughs) The Sam Sanders Sean Ray in black pants. I feel like I'm getting both of you right now. So we're going to do it. So, of course, before we start, the usual Listener Mail cast. We're recording this one Friday, November 4th. So obviously some stuff may happen over on the weekend. We're not going to talk about it here, but don't worry. There's a new episode coming in your feed tonight, which is Sunday the 6th. That'll round up the weekend's political news. Everybody ready? Let's Uh do it. All right, here we go. Let's start with a question from Jenny in Seattle. She writes, Hey, y'all, my friends and I were thinking about having an election day potluck while we watch the election results come in. What kind of coverage can we expect from various news channels? Jenny. Domenico, as the guy that's actually worked in TV on this podcast, yeah. what do you what what is to be expected on this election night on TV? A lot of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Have the countdown <laughs> clocks started yet? Uh, you know, uh, I don't think I was with an organization that did a lot of countdown clocks as much, but I'm sure there will be uh, countdown clocks. But what you're going to see is lots of big flashing graphics, virtual room for uh, exit polling. Uh, a lot of people in this election, because it's so fast on your phone, People will probably have TVs on for like when the call is made because those networks are so good and so fast at making calls. Uh, But people will also have their phones up waiting for alerts. So I think it's going to be information overload, but probably in a really good way in this election. You know, Sue and I, you might confuse on election night. Uh, (laughs) All the time. Happens all the time. (laughs) Difficult to tell the difference uh, because she and I will be in studio coming in and out, trying to stay on top of everything. And then uh, Elsa is in here. Elsa, you could maybe tell where you're going to be. Yeah, I'm going back to Nevada for election night. So I'll be keeping my eye on sort of the western region of the country as polls are coming in. I'll also continue covering the Senate race there. There's a very close Senate race between Republican Joe Heck and Democrat Catherine Cortez Masto. A key state in this election. Um, And, you know, we'll have an exit poll team. We will have uh, people at the various headquarters. Uh, And online, you should be able to find our live blog, which is going to be really great. Uh, And we have live results uh, map that you'll see. And below that, one of my pet things that I kind of really love about it is there's every single county in the country you'll find. We've starred for you the key counties to watch, and you can sort that table by unemployment rate, by race, uh, by income level, education level, because those have all been such important factors in this election. So if you want to go deep, and I know our audience is smart, you can. 
And of course, we're going to be doing a podcast that night. So stay tuned. Can I just say I Googled this a little bit? Like, what do people serve at election parties? What is an election <laughs> potluck food? And if you have enough food dye and no concern about taste, you can make anything red, white, and blue in the universe. What was the weirdest thing you saw? Probably the weirdest thing was red, white, and blue pigs in a blanket. Ooh. Uh. It was like, make the bun blue, the pig, the sausage is red, and like squirt some mayonnaise over it. Oh. And there you go. You have like the perfect colors. Red, white, and blue checks mix. Um, so, but I think, I mean, just to cover the potluck question, I think that Jenny should think about serving foods from all over the country, like different regions of the country. So your spread represents the unity that's been torn asunder by this election. You could have your Tex-Mex stuff, your New England clam chowder and lobster, your Southern soul food. For the Midwest, I was in Indiana, covered the Hot Senate dish. I had a pork brain sandwich. I highly recommend them. I swear to God, it's really pretty good. Pork brains? Pork brains. The actual brains of a pig. It's like a juicy, fatty pork chop. And it actually was pretty good. Elsa is very culinary adventurous. She will eat anything. I will. (laughs) Thank you, Hannibal Lecter. (laughs) Um, Next up, we have a recorded question from Courtney in North Carolina. Let's hear it. Hey, y'all. This is Courtney in North Carolina. I'm a mom and a minister, and although I'm an independent, I'm now with her. Earlier in 2016, I was feeling the burn, but one thing that helped me sway toward Hillary was seeing the pride on Chelsea Clinton's face when she talks about her mom. It humanized Hillary for me in a way that nothing else has. So that has left me wondering, why have we not heard more from Chelsea since the Democratic Convention? I'm a big fan, and I'm busy spreading the gospel of the NPR Politics Podcast. Thanks for all you do. Oh, thanks, Courtney. Um, Well, I would say initially, I do think that Chelsea Clinton has been out on the campaign trail. She does do a lot of events. She just doesn't do a lot of media. So I think that's one reason why if you're not actually going to an event where she's speaking, you're probably not hearing a lot from her. It's so interesting to me how similar... Uh, Chelsea Clinton and Hillary Clinton are. I mean, you can see the bond that they have between them. I love the joke at the convention that she was saying that, you know, her father was watching all those like bad old 80s movies and her and her mom were like watching Pride and what? Pride and and Prejudice or (laughs) Sense and Sensibilities, right? They just sort of like have this, you know, and and to your point, Sue, about the fact that she doesn't do a lot of interviews, I think both she and her mother have this sense of a zone of privacy and they don't want to have to be out there as much. Uh, But she wants to do some events to try to help her mother win, for sure. She's probably like the best positioned human being in the world who can tell touching stories about Hillary right. Clinton. Like for me, the most powerful part of her her convention speech was that anecdote about how uh, Hillary Clinton would leave daily notes for Chelsea mm-hmm. every time they had to be apart when Clinton would have to go to work. Because it was powerful in the sense that it conjured up this very familiar image of Clinton as that dutiful, thorough, meticulous person. You know, I, I could just see Clinton leaving these notes every day very ritualistically. But in that anecdote, that meticulousness was an expression of love. And that was a really cool way to frame these qualities about Clinton that otherwise don't make her the most exciting candidate. You know, she gets her homework done. She checks all the boxes. But in that anecdote, it was an extension of her passion for her daughter. So, yeah, I think I, I agree with this listener that maybe Chelsea 
could have used that more in the campaign yeah. trail, told more touching personal stories. Yeah, like I mean, I think that there's uh, there was a whole lot more specificity at the uh, Democratic convention from Chelsea Clinton about her mom than you saw at the Republican convention with uh, Trump's children. Yeah. And also, you've heard that both about Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, though, that when you, voters that support either one of them point to their kids as a reason that they like them, you know, that and even at the debate moment when they were asked to say something nice to each other and, and Clinton said about Trump that he seems like he's raised yeah. nice kids and that they have a strong family bond. And you know what? The kids don't choose politics. Yeah. That's the other thing, you know. Um, well, thanks, Courtney. And thanks for spreading the gospel. OK, next is a question from Dave in Seattle. Dave writes, G'day from a Kiwi living in Seattle. What winning percentage could be considered a landslide victory? Also, what would constitute a win with a mandate? I'm enjoying the daily shows. Thanks, Dave. This word mandate, we are in such a polarized country that any politician who believes that they have a mandate by winning you know, a slim majority, if they get a majority, uh, is fooling themselves and setting themselves up and their supporters for disappointment. Um, I think that politicians are often, you know, misled by electoral college victories because, uh, you, you know, you can win a very narrow, you know, three, four point win and you're going to win Pretty much, if that if that holds in a lot of different battleground states, you're going to have a huge electoral landslide victory. That doesn't necessarily mean that all of the people in those places are backing every single agenda item that you have. Um, one thing I want to point out, you would never hear this kind of language today, but George W. Bush, when he won in 2004, he used the word mandate and he talked about having a mandate. And I said, does he really think he has a mandate when he's won by three points? He won 50.7 to 48 over John Kerry. And then uh, days later with reporters, he said, I earned capital in this campaign. I've earned capital in this election and I'm going to spend it for for what I what I told the people I'd spend it on, which is you've heard the agenda. So security and tax reform, uh, moving this economy forward, education, fighting and winning the war on terror. It's pretty stunning stuff considering uh, that Barack Obama twice won by a bigger margin than George W. Bush. And nobody would think Barack Obama had a real mandate to get a lot of stuff done. Do you think the word mandate would totally backfire this year if any candidate oh, tried to yes. use that? Absolutely. Right? We're going to have a more closely divided House, a more closely divided Senate, most likely, probably a very close presidential election. If anybody tries to use the word mandate, that could be explosive. They would look not only presumptuous, but just Tone silly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's it, there's no way that, that's, that there's going to be a mandate. The only time things get done, and you, know, you guys can speak to this better than I could, but you know, things get done when the party in power has numbers. They need Congress. They need Congress to get things done. If you don't have the numbers in Congress, you're not going to get a lot of things done. Uh, you're going to have divided power or you need a crisis. You know, you had 9-11 happen and everyone got together to try to figure out, um, you know, what to do foreign policy wise. Uh, and when the economic crisis happened in 2008, there was a certain amount of capital that Barack Obama had to get a stimulus package through and to be able to you know, get some kinds of financial regulations passed. And even because he had numbers, was able to get health care passed. Uh, but that was it. Moving on, we have another recorded question from Curtis in the Netherlands. Let's hear it. Hi, NPR Politics Podcast. My name is Curtis. I'm from Rotterdam, the Netherlands. That's Europe. Why are people born outside the U.S. not eligible to run for president? How and why did this come to fruition? And is there any chance of changing this? And no, I'm not thinking about a demolition man scenario. <laughs> Just saying. Thank you very much. I really love and enjoy listening to the podcast ever since I've discovered it. 
promise I'll keep listening after the elections. That's great. Much love. Peace. Aww, that's <laughs> great. Much love, Curtis. Okay, well, there's a very black and white answer to why is there this requirement. It's in the Constitution. Section 1 of Article 2 of the Constitution says no person except a natural-born citizen or a citizen of the United States at the time of the adoption of this Constitution shall be eligible to the office of president. So the question is, what does it mean to be a natural-born citizen? And legal experts on both sides have construed this over time to mean anybody who's born a citizen and doesn't have to go through like the naturalization process to become a citizen. So you don't actually have to be born within the borders of the actual United States of America to be a citizen. If you're born to a parent who's a U.S. citizen, this applies to Ted Cruz, who was born in Calgary, Canada. His mom was a U.S. citizen at the time. His father, who was from Cuba, was not. But people on both sides, there was a consensus when he was running. There yeah. were, there were well, people pushing back a little look, bit. Natural, natural born's always been, he been eligible. Natural yeah. born's always been a debated point. Yes. Um, the other part of that clause is you have to be 35 years old and you have to have lived in the United States for 14 years. So all of those things are there, but you have to be, you know, either born in the U.S. or born to parents of uh, who are citizens. Where, what is the thinking behind this? I think it's this feeling that our founding fathers had that the highest office holder in the land should be as free as possible from foreign influence. If you think about it, at the time they were writing the Constitution, it was very important to assert independence from Great Britain. And the thought of the most powerful person in the country being foreign-born was anathema to this idea of pure unattached, true independence. I actually, uh, my question back to Curtis and maybe anybody else who's listening, we have so many listeners abroad, is what do other countries do? I, don't, I actually don't know. I, d- I didn't go ocean. and look this up. I wonder if there is some, someone could go to another country or if there have been presidents of other countries, um, you know, who weren't born in that country. I'm there, sure the there closest have been. they came, there was a conversation not that long ago about whether this, debating whether this was something that should change. If you remember um, Arnold Schwarzenegger, former governor of California, oh, but yeah. there was this moment where, particularly in the Republican Party, that Arnold Schwarzenegger was looked at someone who could potentially run for president one day. And there was, in the California Republican Party at least, a conversation about should we try and change the Constitution <laughs> to let someone like an Arnold Schwarzenegger run for president? And there was some advocates for that in Congress. I would say that the Republican Party uh, has shifted tremendously to the right, particularly on immigration, and the idea that there would be any kind of groundswell for support to essentially change the Constitution because you would need a constitutional amendment to, to allow for this to happen seems all but impossible. I, mean, I thought he was born in, in like Seattle for because he was kindergarten cop. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot about that movie. Um, uh, and thanks, thanks, Curtis. Thanks for your letter. Um, our next question comes to us from Mel in right here in D.C. Mel writes, I've seen videos floating around my Facebook page that have tons of celebrities and pop culture icons endorsing candidates. In terms of surrogates, how useful are celebrities to get a candidate's message out? And can you think of any historical examples of really great celebrity endorsements? Um, The one that came to mind immediately, and I don't know if it actually made an end result in the race, but in Obama 08, the Will I Am Yes We Can video that was set to music that had like all it was Hollywood A-listers in this video. uh, And Yes We Can was obviously his like campaign slogan. And that was like a real moment in the campaign. The thing that you have to watch if you're a candidate is the lineup like 
if you got Chachi on one side and Beyonce <laughs> on the other and Jay-Z and Robert De Niro and Katy Perry and Selma Hayek, like, that is something that speaks for itself. It's not necessarily who you get, but how many of the totally, totally seemingly cool people. I mean, no offense. I was a big Scott Bayo fan. Hey. Yeah, Charles in Charge. Joni loves Chachi. Absolutely. Um, but <laughs> But in terms of, like, do they matter? I don't know. I don't know if they matter. I think that. I can't think of a race that we would look at to be like, whew, that Jay-Z endorsement really, really changed yeah, but Pennsylvania. You know, yeah. that stuff is to, you know, it's to juice people who are base supporters to go turn out at the polls, yeah. you know? All right. Thanks, Mel. Next up, we have a question from Michael in Baltimore. He writes, hello, Politics Podcast. I have been hearing a lot of talk lately about putting term limits on Congress. Assuming that the impossibility of passing a constitutional amendment in this polarized time could actually happen, what would the impact of such a change be? Would it affect the balance of parties in Congress? Great show. Thanks for making it. This sounds like an A-B conversation. I'll see my way out of it. <laughs> <laughs> just, just be quiet for a moment. Right. Let, let the Congress take over. I hear this a lot on the campaign trail, actually, for when I'm covering Senate races, mostly from conservative voters who have this impression that if we impose term limits on Congress, it will make Congress more accountable, less corrupt, less obsessed with fundraising. But I'm not so convinced it's the magic formula to making a more highly functioning Congress. For, you know, after being on the Hill for a few years, Sue, I mean, I'm sure you would agree with, with me on this point. Deep policy experience is an excellent thing on Capitol Hill. The act of legislating is a very in-the-weeds thing. When you're writing bills, when you're figuring out what are the smart, sharp questions to ask in hearings about these bills, when you're answering reporters' questions about bills, you have to really know your stuff. And legislative aides can only take you so far. It's, you know, it's very clear who commands more respect on these committees. They are the lawmakers who've been there the longest, who've studied that policy area the longest. Those are the lawmakers I go to when I'm trying to get answers, substantive answers to policy questions. So you can't accrue that kind of policy experience just by serving in the House two or three terms, four to six years. You have to be there for a while. Sometimes it takes four to six years just to get on the committee you would like to be on, that you're trying to affect change on. You know, the thing I, I think the term limits line has been very popular in American politics, certainly for the last several decades. And I think it's an easy applause line when you're trying to campaign. But I also think, and and I've written a lot about this too, that there is this perception that people get elected to Congress and just never leave. But the turnover in Congress is actually fairly high. Since Barack Obama was elected president, there's been a 50% turnover rate in the House and a 70% turnover rate in the Senate. So despite those incumbency rates. Exactly. Yeah. You know, so and part of that is we've had a series of wave elections and retirements. There's been some deaths in the Senate. There's more turnover than not just by the nature of the beast and by our own politics. Uh, and I also like my skepticism about term limits and why it's been they would need a constitutional amendment is that, you know, putting conditions on the office that are not in the Constitution are complicated. But particularly in the House of Representatives. The House was designed to be as close to the pulse of the public as possible, and term limits would be a restriction on that. You right. know, I mean, people. the counterargument to term limits is we have term limits. We have them every two years. They're called elections. There's also this argument that if you impose term limits on Congress too much, like power ends up or influence ends up getting transferred to people on the outside, like lobbyists, right. because they become the they've been there for so players long. Yeah, right. over long periods of time. Power doesn't go away. It just shifts. It just shifts. They become the policy experts. So it's good for members of Congress to stay incentivized to want to build policy expertise and have their own aid study up. 
Okay, moving on. We have a question from a listener across the pond, Verity in the UK. Verity writes, Hey, NPR politics team, I'm a journalist in the UK, and I've been listening to you all year to get an American perspective on your politics and election. I was just wondering what the rules are for the media on voting day over where you are. Here in the UK, on voting day itself, all you can say is that the polls are open, what the weather is like, and which politicians, the high-profile ones, have voted. No polls, no opinions, no policies. We get our exit poll results at 10.01 p.m. after the polls have officially closed. It's an actual criminal offense to talk about how people have voted before that. And that's when the speculation starts again. So what are the rules in the U.S.? Keep up the good work and thank you. Well, I asked our standards and practices person, Mark Memmott, what is the NPR policy? And we actually changed it after the 2008 election. NPR actually had a rule similar to the British yes. uh, rules. A blanket prohibition against airing political stories the day of the election. Which, by the way, in this culture, seems nuts. That's exactly yeah. it. That's why the, that's why it changed. There was this rationale that, you know, the reality of the Internet has kind of outdated that rule. Because no matter what, voters are going to be barraged 24-7 every single day, including Election Day. So so what we have on our air specifically is less of an issue since voters have access to all kinds of media influence anyway on Election Day. I'm also, I'm just struck by this sort of sacredness that Election Day is treated with. It's this, it's, there are some media organizations, it sounds like, who regard this as this untouchable sacred day where, you know, we can strip it of any sort of media influence. And I think that that's just kind of a fantasy because, well, first of all, the vast majority of voters, correct me if I'm wrong, Dominica, the vast majority of voters make up their minds about who they're going to vote for before Election Day. And in large part, those decisions are made because of what they read and see and hear in the media. We have a lot to do with those decisions. So whether those decisions are made well before Election Day or on Election Day, I don't think really makes much of a difference. It just seems like a fiction to try to preserve Election Day as a sacred, untainted day. Especially because, you know, as many as a third or if not more Americans will already have voted by the time we get to Election Day. Now, there is something we do hold pretty sacred, and we want to make sure that we're not um, going on air with uh, trying to predict or project outcomes before uh, polls are closed in enough places where the candidate has gotten enough electoral votes to be officially declared the winner. And not to mention, things could change. I mean, if people are still voting in other places later in the night, you know, there's the possibility that, uh, you know, that Donald Trump could pick off a uh, Michigan or a Wisconsin or something that maybe closes a little bit later. You just don't know until you actually have votes in. So you don't want to be predicting outcomes uh, and disenfranchising people. I think where there becomes a conversation is that when you know the votes are already in, the electoral votes are done, and a place like California still hasn't closed yet, right? Then you have a little bit of a discussion internally as to what you do. But we are following the Associated Press's calls and projections, and what they go with is what we will go with. Although I think we should say to her point, you know, we've talked about NPR guidelines, but those are private standards, and and every news organization sets their own private standards. We are not subject to any laws. There's no criminal penalties for what we can say or do on air. So I think that is a very sharp, distinct difference between the U.S. and the U.K., is that there's no federal law that dictates what we can or can't say. Yay, First Amendment. (laughs) Uh, Thanks, Verity. Uh, Our last question is recorded. It's from Storm in Baltimore. Hey, so this is uh, Storm from Baltimore. Um, I was writing because I've seen this, like, if only millennials voted map uh, floating around for a little while. And I was wondering, you know, first of all, how accurate is this map? 
And then if we just included everybody else voting, but if millennials had a really strong turnout rate, would that change the election as well? And I'm wondering if as we age, are we more likely to become more conservative over time? Were other age groups really liberal when they were young too? Or has that trend kind of been changing? Thanks. So a lot to unpack there. Yeah. So I've seen this map and, you know, I think that it's important to point out um, if you were to take young voters or millennials or people who are under 35, so it'd be 19 to 35 is, is millennial technically. But if, but if we're talking broadly about young voters, um, yes, if you were to put them on a map and take everybody else out, then Hillary Clinton would likely be the next president pretty easily uh, and win almost all of the states. We've seen similar maps like that recently, but right. if just women voted if or just, if just yep, ex yep. voted. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's probably a little bit of a pet peeve among millennials because they hear this constant drumbeat or had heard one that said, you know, why are you voting for Gary Johnson? Or why are you saying that these two candidates are the same? They're not. The future depends on it. You've heard Barack Obama talk about uh, about this in uh, interviews with, like with Samantha Bee, right? So like the point is not that they are voting majority for Hillary Clinton. The point is how much will they turn out at what rate and uh, at what margin? And I think that that's similar to what you're seeing the uh, Clinton campaign and Barack Obama as well try to get out African-American voters to they don't expect it to be the same level for Barack Obama, but to similar levels to maintain that kind of blue wall of states that are leaning toward Hillary Clinton to put her over the top of 270. And also, I think when you're younger, you have less of an investor stake in the economy, right? Like your thoughts on politics change as you age and maybe you stay more liberal or become more conservative or it doesn't change. But when you start, you know, paying taxes and trying to buy a house and having loans and it just changes your relationship with your government. Yeah. Your experiences, I mean, are going to definitely shape which direction you're going to go. Thank you, Storm. Thanks for listening. Okay, that's all the mail for now. Shout out to all the people sending us mail. We really appreciate it. Even if we can't reply, your questions and comments are super helpful. So thank you so, so much. A reminder, if you haven't written us but want to, our address is nprpolitics at npr.org. We'll be back with a new episode Sunday evening. Until then, keep up with our political coverage in NPR One and on your local public radio station. I'm Susan Davis. I cover Congress. I'm Elsa Chang. I also cover Congress. And I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. And thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast.